know, it's hard to believe that it's been just about a year since I stood right here and said something like this. During the course of this campaign, we're gonna give money that in many cases we don't even have to people that in many cases we haven't even met yet for a God that we love very much. And over the last 12 months, that's exactly what's happened. We've seen God bring in more than $2 million for these campaign goals. And with that money, we've been able to expand the kingdom right here in the capital region, but also around the world through our ministry relationships. On October the 26th of last year, we broke ground on the Half Moon expansion. God answered our prayers and the project has moved along safely and quickly ahead of schedule. We look forward to the year ahead and the day we'll actually be able to use this amazing 8,000 square feet addition for ministry. We were able to help fund important local projects like the beautiful new kitchen and dining room renovation at Joseph House in Troy. And today we're excited to be able to write our first check to World Vision to help aid in refugee relief in Lebanon. We caught up with our Saratoga pastor, Mike Adams, to talk about what this moment means to him personally. By far, one of the most impactful parts of my trip last year was getting a chance to visit one of the refugee camps right there in Lebanon. I sat in a shack with a woman from Syria. She wore a key around her neck to the front door of her home. She and her children fled Syria for Lebanon after she witnessed her husband murdered. She wears that key around her neck with the hope that she can return home one day. Stories like hers are played out hundreds of times over in the camps that I visited. Conditions that are unfathomable to us are their everyday reality. A world vision intentionally and creatively shares the good news of Jesus by being the hands and feet of the gospel right there in Lebanon. Part of what I saw over there was a school that World Vision established for the youngest victims of this crisis. The school is there to give them a hope and a real chance in their life. There are also programs bringing clean water technology to these camps that desperately need it. The things that we take for granted are the things that they pray for. And finally, World Vision is directly helping local pastors who are there bringing the gospel to the people that are right there. It's an overwhelming feeling to know that our church is playing a part in this solution. Being able to contribute this way means real life change to the people most affected by this crisis. <laughs> For the mother I met, it means her children will have clean drinking water and an education and just maybe it gives her the hope of getting home safe and sound. It also means that there will be a local church ready to love them every step of the way. Thanks, Pastor Mike, for sharing that. This is just the beginning. Along with the humanitarian aid projects, we're trusting God to see not only the completion of the Half Moon expansion, but the beginnings of the Latham renovations over the course of this next year. Drawings for the KC Hallway in Latham are approved and we're looking to begin construction this summer. On top of that, we're working with our kingdom partners in India and Uganda to provide the life-giving gift of clean water to villages there. 
All of these things were made possible through God's grace and through the generosity of this church. But you know, it's not too late. It's not too late to get on board with what God is doing with Grace Fellowship in this 2020 vision campaign. And if you haven't made a campaign pledge as an individual or as a family, you can do that today. Simply visit the display in the lobby, fill out a pledge card, then drop it off at the information center or in the offering basket in the coming weeks. Wow, it's been an amazing 12 months and we're looking forward to everything God will do in the next year of 2020 Vision. Amen. Yes, amen. You know, I seldom meet someone that I agree with entirely, but I agree with every word that guy said just now. I really do. Such important ministry going on, and thank you so much, congregation, for your generosity and for your involvement in this 2020 vision. Well, our country was left reeling this past Valentine's Day when the news uh, broke about the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. 17 were killed, 14 injured. The victims included that beloved football coach who is being lauded as a hero, rightly, because he threw his body between some students and some bullets to shield them. And then there's the geography teacher who was shot while locking the door to the classroom, but in doing so, he no doubt saved the lives of many students inside. Students as young as 14 were victims as well as those who were just ready to graduate and start college this fall. This is one of the worst school shootings in our U.S. history, and the families and communities of these who are lost are left to grieve their loss and to try to pick up the pieces and put their lives together again as they honor the memories of those they love so dearly. But do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder how do people go through stressful times without the companionship of Jesus Christ? Without some ultimate hope beyond this world or some sort of compassionate hope in this world? I mean, how do they do it? How do they go through times that are scary and wrenching anxiety situations without the assurance that should they die, should they meet a horrible fate, they would be in the presence of the Lord? Well, we come today in a, a section in Luke's gospel where we are going to have a series of stories where Jesus helped people who are going through really tough situations, and he shows over and over again, that he is a caring friend to those in need. And today, I want us to dive into this first story in this section from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, as we see Jesus' encounter with a Roman centurion and how Jesus responded to this man's faith. Now, 
Let me just say, as we go through this study today, as we go on this journey in God's word, I don't know where you are on your journey. I mean, maybe you're brand new to this whole thing. Maybe you're just kind of wondering, what is this all about? Maybe something that's going on in your life personally has brought you to a point of searching and exploring Christ. I want you to know, boy, God's got a word for you today. So if you have ears to hear by faith, I think God wants to speak a special message to you, one that just might change your life forever. First of all, I want you to see a request that this centurion made. And let's start by looking at the text, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now I want you to see several characteristics about this Roman leader. First of all, he was an influential man. The very word centurion, as you might figure out, if you know a little Latin or maybe Greek, you know that this word means a hundred. He was a leader of a hundred soldiers, but possibly more than that. He was influential. One commentator I was reading said he was a man among men, a real mover and shaker, an influence in his cult- influencer in his, in his culture. Now, it's kind of intriguing to me that when you read about Roman centurions in the Bible, in the New Testament, they're always, this is intriguing, spoken of in a positive light. Remember the Roman centurion who was at the cross, for instance, and he declared, he made a declaration that many were unwilling to make. This is the Son of God, he said. And then you have this centurion here who is filled with amazing faith. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius talked about who became the first Gentile convert to Christianity. He was a Roman centurion. And then, of course, we read in Acts that there were two Roman centurions who actually helped the Apostle Paul and helped save his life. Kind of interesting. People sometimes that you would never dream would be friends of God or faithful to God or wanting to help the cause actually stand up and do. And this guy was admired for his generosity to the Jewish people. Verse 4 reads, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this. Now, boy, I'd love to stop there and have a good discussion with you because I just want to make a footnote. That's what they said about him. Okay, and the reason they gave is because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Wonderful things, by the way. But did he deserve for God to do anything for him? Listen, listen. They said that about him, but this man, as we're later going to discover, knew the real scoop. He knew that he didn't deserve anything from God. He knew that he was unworthy, and I just point that out because that's an important distinction. None of us ever deserve God's grace. In fact, if you deserved it, it wouldn't be 
grace. Grace, by its very definition, if it's the real article, is unmerited, undeserved favor. But no doubt, this man was respected because he was a wonderful man of kindness, and that was rare in this world. Secondly, not only was he influential, but he was a compassionate man. He cared about someone that most people wouldn't have given the time of day. Now, I won't bore you with the details of of what servanthood and slavery was like in this day, but suffice to say, people who were in this kind of servitude usually were considered like property, and yet this man loved this servant. And so when he was sick, that servant's pain was in the centurion's heart, and he went to great trouble to try to restore his health. Third, he was a humble man. Verse 6 reads, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, Lord, don't, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, boy, that is so rare. I mean, remember, the Romans were top dog. They were in charge. The Jewish people were their subjects. And so for a Roman centurion, come on now, to say to a poor Jewish rabbi, I don't deserve to have you even come under my roof. I mean, I think that is uniquely humble. And by the way, I believe that humility in our culture is one of the most undervalued virtues of all. As no doubt you've heard, Billy Graham passed away this past Wednesday, February the 21st, at the age of 99, the man who shared the gospel with more people than anyone in history by far, truly an amazing servant of God. His life and his organization changed the whole trajectory of my life, to be quite honest, Grace Fellowship is probably in God's providence here today because of the influence of Billy Graham. I met my wife while working for the Billy Graham team in the Syracuse area of New York. And humanly speaking, that's one of the major reasons that God designed for me to be here. All a part of his plan, but again, all a part of the ripple effect of Billy Graham's life. He passed away this past Wednesday on Thursday... Debbie and I received an invitation to his private funeral in Charlotte at the Billy Graham Library, and we're planning to go to that this Friday. It'll be at 12 noon, and we'd appreciate your prayers. It's kind of cool that they're having it in a tent, a canvas cathedral. Rather than some fancy cathedral or mausoleum made of stone and wood and what have you, it's in a tent. Why is that? It's very symbolic. Billy Graham broke through the nation's consciousness, became a household name in 1949 in Los Angeles at the Canvas Cathedral Crusade. That's what it was called. And it was scheduled for three weeks in downtown LA, but it went on for six weeks because so many people were being saved. You know the name Louis Zamperini 
of the movie and the book, Unbroken. Well, he was saved at that Canvas Cathedral crusade in L.A. And so many other movie stars and leaders were being saved by God that they just continued on for six weeks. So they're having it in a Canvas Cathedral as a symbol that this is all about God and what God has done. And if you've listened at all this week, you know at least a snippet of what God accomplished through this humble servant. But I want you to know from my perspective, the most amazing thing about Billy Graham is his humility. It never went to his head. He honestly, even in his later years, was still amazed truly amazed that God would use him. And that kind of humility is a rare thing, but very precious. And I want you to know today that if you're on a journey of exploration, real faith begins with humility. It begins with this humble admission, I am unworthy. I am a sinner. I've broken God's laws and I've fallen short of his standards. I'm not worthy of his grace. But pride gets in the way of that humble admission, doesn't it? And we want to think, well, I'm deserving. And if there's anything we can learn from this centurion, it's that he got that piece of it, didn't he? He realized that he was unworthy to receive anything from God. Jesus once put a little child on his lap and he said, unless... You humble yourself and become like this little child. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's where a saving faith really begins. Fourth, and finally, I want you to see that he was, and this seems to be the thing that perhaps impressed Jesus most of all, he was a believing man. Now, evidently, he'd heard some stories about this healer going around, this teacher, this rabbi who did miracles. But he'd probably never seen any of it himself, but he'd gotten word about Jesus doing these things, and by faith, he said, I believe he can heal my servant. And so he sent some people to go get Jesus. He believed that it could happen. Verse 7. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, Jesus, I know something about exercising authority, but he recognized that Jesus had even more authority than he did. And he said, look, I I don't want to bother. Don't even come to my house. Just, Just speak. Just say the word, Lord. And I know that with your authority, it will be done. What a remarkable man of faith he was. But second today, I want you to see not only the centurion's request, but I want you to now look at Jesus' response to his request. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, if you study the New Testament carefully, look in the Gospels. You will find only two places, just two, where it says Jesus was amazed. One of them is right here, 
He's amazed at the great faith of the centurion. And you know where the second one is? It's recorded in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. And it says, and I quote, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Question, how does Jesus feel about your level of faith right now? How does Jesus feel about that? When he looks at you and me right now, what kind of faith does he see? Is he amazed? Is he amazed at our great faith or perhaps our lack of it? But I want to emphasize again that a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ begins right there. It begins with faith, with trust in him. The Bible says of this great person, Abraham, a great figure in Jewish history, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. He believed God. He had faith in God. Now, Abraham wasn't a perfect man. He was far from it. He had all kinds of flaws. But the one marking characteristic of Abraham is he believed that God would do what he said he would do. So, again, let me, I know I'm being personal, but let me ask you. When God says, look, when you believe and put your trust in me, you will be saved. Question, do you believe that? You see, Abraham believed that what God said was true. And he could put his trust in that. And that's where faith begins today. That's where a friendship with Christ begins. And I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're going through immense anxiety and stress because of your job or your family is unraveling or your finances are in a mess. Or your physical health is in turmoil. I don't know. But how do you get through stuff like that? Without a caring friend. Without some kind of ultimate hope. And so Jesus responded to this man's faith, in this case, with a healing. Verse 10 reads, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well, wow, that's a miracle. Jesus performed a miracle, and this is rather unusual. He didn't often do this. This miracle is from a distance. Usually dealt, Jesus dealt with people in very close encounters, even laying hands on people in many cases. I like Psalm 107. It says, he sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. Did you know God's a God of miracles? He can be a God of miracles in your life too. And I don't say that glibly. Now I think we need to remind ourselves that there are many things today in our world that we take for granted that 100 years ago would have been considered mystifying or miraculous. We drive up to our house, and we punch a little button in our car, and a door goes up on our garage. We just, that's, just take that for granted. hundred years ago, that would have been considered miraculous. We take a little plastic card, put it in a machine, punch a few buttons, and $20 bills start rolling out. 
we go, well, that's just something we do. But 100 years ago, they would have said, wow, I can't wrap my mind around that. That's mystifying and miraculous. We can go to the other side of the world, thousands of miles from home, and we can take a phone on a gorgeous sunset over an ocean, and we can take a video of that gorgeous sunset, and we can send it by a text to our friends back home, and it all happens in seconds. 100 years ago, wow, that's a miracle. And there are all these things that we just take for granted today, but see, most of us can't explain them. God does a lot of things in this world, folks, that we can't explain and we don't understand. And I don't understand this miracle he did. I don't know how he did it. I don't know what mechanism there was there. All I know is what I read here, but I know that one day we will understand. I chuckle at Roger Chambers, who was a professor at a Christian college, and he said, in heaven, there's going to be a lot of people with flat foreheads, flat foreheads, that are going to be walking around in heaven going, oh, now I understand, now I understand. And I can't explain how Jesus could speak a word and heal this servant immediately. But I believe it. And I can't explain to you how he may break into your life and change the trajectory of your life. But I know how he's done it for me. And I can only get excited about what God just may want to do for you today. If. You have this thing called faith, this trust that you're willing to place in him. Well, as we move down home stretch today, I want to share four what I believe to be important lessons about faith. Now, again, I don't know where you are. Some of you have been following Christ, I think, for a long time. I think there's something here for you in these lessons. But for those of you who are brand new, I'll bet you will get something too. So let's look at them before we go. First of all, faith is believing what you cannot see and cannot prove. I like the way the book of Hebrews puts it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Apparently, the centurion had never seen Jesus heal and certainly not from a distance, but he believed it could be done and faith was exercised. Now, when you think about it, we Christians ask people to believe a lot of pretty remarkable things. Would you agree? Think about it with me for a moment. We actually believe that there's an almighty God who's not only omnipotent and omniscient, but that he actually knows us personal and he's personal. That's an amazing belief. Can't explain that to anyone, but we ask people to believe that, even though we've not seen this God with our physical eyes. You know what else? We believe there's an almighty God who's so powerful that he created this world. He created this universe all the way from the humongous stars out there to the tiny molecular level particles that can be seen only under the most powerful microscopes. He created it all. And although I've never seen this God with my eyes, 
I believe in it. And I ask people to believe that. Isn't that remarkable? That we would ask people to actually believe that? You know what else we believe? And we ask people to believe that although we have fallen short of that God's standards for us, and in our sin, we are broken people, we believe And we ask people to believe that this God so loved us that he came on a rescue mission, entered this world in human flesh, and died on a cross, and this, this atoning death for our sins so we could be forgiven. Can you believe that? We ask people to believe this stuff. We really do. And we believe that this God, this Christ, after three days, actually rose from the grave. And even though we've never seen someone do that, probably, we ask people to believe it. And we believe that when we place simple faith and trust in him and what he's done for us, that all of our sins can be forgiven. We can be adopted into God's family. And he actually, yes, this eternal God comes to live inside of us by his spirit. Can I just level with you, gang? We're either crazy or all of that stuff is supernaturally true. But that's what we ask people to believe. Faith is believing what you cannot see and cannot prove. Although there's awfully good evidence. Well, that brings me to a second lesson. Faith, get this one now, does require a personal choice. Now, when I mention choice in reference to faith, I believe that some of you probably will push back and go, but pastor, faith is also a gift, isn't it? I believe it is. I believe God even provides the faith that we exercise and believe with. I believe that personally, okay? But it's not just a gift. He also asked for a personal choice on our part. Now, the centurion wasn't more intelligent and did not have more evidence than other people. He chose to believe. Listen to me, friends. Faith is a choice. We choose to believe these things about God are true, or you can choose to go through life as a skeptic. You do know, don't you, that some people choose not to believe? They choose it. Really, they choose it. Interesting passage, Acts chapter 19. It says, but some of them became obstinate. Catch these words now. If you doubt what I'm saying, they refused to believe. Didn't say they didn't have enough evidence. Didn't say that, hey, they didn't kind of wonder could this be true because boy it looks awfully good here it says they refuse to believe and they publicly malign the way that is the christian movement why would anybody do that you say come on why would anybody refuse to believe i think there's two main reasons one is pride because you do have to swallow your pride God doesn't save strutters. God saves the humble. And contrary to some erroneous teachings, 
You do not have to commit intellectual suicide in order to become a Christian. But you do, you do have to crucify your pride. I'll give you that. And that is difficult. But I think the main reason people choose not to believe is moral. I think it's moral rebellion. Here's the deal. If I believe this, I got to live this. If I believe this, wow, I would have to make some changes in my life. And I kind of like some of the things right now in my life that I'm afraid might have to change if I declared belief in God. Psalm 10 says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Some people choose not to believe. And no one put it better than Jesus when he said in John chapter 3, this is the verdict, light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So most unbelief is not a matter of a lack of evidence. It's a matter of the will. And people say in their obstinacy, I will not believe. Happens all the time. Third lesson is that faith is measured by degrees and it is increased by action. Now, I would ask you to really perk up right here. If you're somewhere on that journey with Christ and you do have some faith in Christ, I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. Jesus applauded this man. He said, I've not seen such great faith, no, not even in Israel. And on another occasion, he rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. You know what I think about you? <laughs> Here's what I think about you. You do know that I think about you, right? I really do. Believe it or not, I pray for you. How does that sound? Here's what I think about you. I think some of you, I'm talking to Grace Fellowship now, people who are part of this church family with some regularity. Here's what I think about you. Some of you are people of great faith. Hallelujah. You believe God. You live it. You're victorious. You act on it. You're people of great faith. Not saying you never have a doubt, but you are people of tremendous faith in God. Here's what else I believe about you, Grace. Some of you at Grace are people of about 20% faith. Really. You say, Pastor, no, honestly, I... I kind of believe this, I, I'm, I'm, I want to believe this, I, I really do somewhere in my heart believe this, but I've also got a lot of doubts, and I'm reminded of Mark chapter 9. You know the story where the dad comes to Jesus, his son is possessed by a demon, the demon is literally trying to kill the son, he'll sometimes throw him in the fire to burn him, he'll sometimes throw him in water to drown him, and the father comes to Jesus with an interesting request. Make a great Bible study sometime to study the requests that were brought to Jesus. Boy, that's a Bible study right there. Interesting. We got one today with the centurion. But this father came with a request. He said, Lord, if you will, or excuse me, if you can, would you help us? Remember Jesus' response? He said, if I can. All things are possible to those who believe. And the man said, Lord, I do believe, help my 
unbelief. And so I believe that many of us at Grace, we honestly are people of faith, but there's this admixture, there's this weird alchemy of doubt in there as well. And I think that's the truth about us. That's what I believe about you and me. But you say, but Pastor Rex, what, what, what if I have some faith? How do I increase my faith? I'm so glad you asked that. You act on it. If you want your faith to grow, you act on it. If the mustard seed is going to grow, you got to take action. you got to plant it in good soil. If this muscle of faith is going to be strengthened, it has to be exercise. When you drive your car at night and it's pitch dark and you're five miles away from home, your headlights don't shine five miles right to your home. At best, they may shine 75 yards in front of you. And if you sit there and wait until you can see everything all the way home, no questions, no doubt about what's out there, everything is visible and clear, you're never going to get home, friend. You're never going to get home. You're going to wait and sit and wait and doubt and be stymied with inertia for the rest of your life. And I say to you, if you want a relationship with Christ, you've got to act on the faith you have. And guess what? As you act on what you do have, as you make progress, you see further. And as you make progress, you see further. And pretty soon, you're going to find yourself making your way home. God will not come down and zap you. Woo! God just hit me like a jolt of electricity and suddenly I understand everything about the Bible. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. You've got to act on the faith you have and when you do that, it eats doubt for breakfast. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So act on the little faith you have and it will increase. That brings us to the final lesson. Genuine faith is always rewarded by God in his time. You read the story with me. Jesus rewarded this man's faith by healing his servant. And faith, genuine faith, is always rewarded by God in his time. Philip Munholland was a young man who desperately wanted to sing and bring glory to God, and he prayed and prayed for a gift. And even though he couldn't read music, and even though he had never really sung before, true story, he was able to sing almost miraculously with an anointed voice that has blessed many, many, many people. God honored and rewarded his prayers of faith. I heard about a little boy who whistled real loudly during the middle of the preacher's prayer one Sunday, and his mother was horrified. He just let out this loud whistle right in the middle of the pastor's prayer. And afterwards, she said, Gary, what were you thinking? What motivated you to do that? He said, Mom, I've been praying that God would teach me how to whistle, and he just then did. <laughs> now, listen. Faith doesn't mean that when you ask for something, you're going to get an immediate whistle or an immediate ability to sing or that you're going to always get an immediate healing or an immediate answer to your financial problems or immediate marital bliss. 
But it does mean that when you sow seeds in faith, one day you're going to reap a positive harvest from God. I will promise you that by God's word. There's a Christian woman in our church that I really respect. It's amazing to me. She stayed in a really bad marriage for 30 years. And if her husband was a believer, he was the most negative, crotchety believer I've ever met in my life. I mean, just very unpleasant to be around. Stayed with it for 30 years, praying, praying, interceding, by faith, asking God to intervene. And many of us believed it would never happen. And yet, today, he has repented of his crotchety ways. He has become a new man, a vibrant, joyful Christian. They're both actively involved in our church. He's radically turned around. And faith keeps on believing what is not yet seen, believing that God will reward those who earnestly seek him. I know a couple in our church who whose marriage ended in divorce. And then both the husband and the wife came to faith in Christ. And they started talking and said, we know the Lord that we really shouldn't be divorced. We ought to get married again. And they sought counsel about that. And even though they had a lot of emotional baggage and a lot of issues to work through and it wasn't going to be easy and they knew that, they decided to put their marriage back together. They wanted their story to be a redemption story. And today, it is. They're enjoying the fellowship of God's people. They're enjoying victory in their lives. They're growing as Christians all because they chose to walk by faith. I know a Christian man in our congregation, who lost his job. But he said, I'm going to continue to tithe even from my unemployment check because I believe that God is going to honor this and he's going to turn this situation around. The guy turned down two or three jobs uh, that were, would have put him in a morally compromised position if he had taken them. And then he was offered a job making far more than his original job or any of the jobs he turned down. And it's also a job that's more in line with his giftedness. God rewarded his faith. God always rewards genuine faith in his time. So let me ask you, where is your faith being tested these days? And are you turning to Jesus as a caring friend? I grew up singing a hymn that was one of my favorites. And it was all about what a friend we have in Jesus. Many people love that old hymn, but they don't know the story behind it. It was 1857. Joseph Scrivens was engaged to be married, but his fiancée drowned on the very evening before they were scheduled to be married the next day. He was so grief-stricken and broken, he left Ireland, his home, and moved to Canada. But his mother back home was ill, and he wrote her a caring, encouraging letter in which he included a little poem that God had helped him write, a poem that later became a favorite hymn of many of us. And I think particularly powerful is the second stanza. Here's what it says. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. 
take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that in Jesus we have a caring friend who knows our every weakness. We want to be people like this centurion of great faith, faith that would actually amaze you And we want to exercise that faith actively as we walk with you and live for you. Lord, we need your grace to do that. So would you help us today and tomorrow and next week to be people of faith who take everything to the Lord in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.